Good morning. I thought you were only supposed to get a cold once per winter. So I've got uh, the repeat going on here. So I've got my stash of Kleenex inside my Bible, just in case I have to resort to those. I'm curious, after Steve's big push for watching the Super Bowl, how many of you actually are going to watch the Super Bowl? Show of hands. Eh, maybe, maybe a third, yeah. Of those of you who are going to watch it, how many of you are going to cheer for the Rams? <laughs> Okay. There's the test. There's the test. Yeah. Die hard. Die hard, Ram fans. Well, for me, it's to cheer for anybody who's not a patriot. So that's. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 will be our primary scriptures this morning. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures, but we'll be ending up with these two. Let's read them in unison. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Please be seated. In the foreword to R.C. Sproul's, the late R.C. Sproul's book, Knowing Scripture, uh, J.I. Packer, a lot of you are familiar with Packer through his book, Knowing God. Uh, Packer writes this. If I were the devil, parentheses, please, no comment. One of my first aims would be to stop folk from digging into the Bible. Knowing that it is the word of God, teaching men to know and love and serve the God of the word, I should do all I could to surround it with the spiritual equivalent of pits, thorn hedges, and man traps to frighten people off. How would I do this? Well, I should try to distract all clergy from preaching and teaching the Bible and spread the feeling that to study this ancient book directly is a burdensome extra which modern Christians can forego without loss. I should broadcast doubts about the truth and relevance and good sense and straightforwardness of the Bible. And if any still insisted on reading, reading it, I should lure them into assuming that the benefit of the practice lies in the noble and tranquil feelings evoked by it, rather than in noting what the scripture actually says. At all costs, I should want to keep them from using their minds in a disciplined way to get the measure of its message. We are in week four of a five-week series here at the beginning of the year 
why you need to be in God's Word in 2019. We're going to be in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 2, where Paul talks about being transformed by the renewal of your mind in just a few minutes. But I want to set it up for you this morning and set those verses into the greater, larger context of all of Romans, so that you don't just think you can jump to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and get the picture, but rather understand how Paul got to this point of writing those words. When the Apostle Paul sat down to write the epistle to the Romans, which is the longest of his 13 epistles, his objective was to present a comprehensive presentation and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, in all of its, with all of its implications for our lives. In chapter 1, verse 16, he begins by expressing his strong confidence in the gospel when he writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Romans is going to be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then begins to elaborate on just exactly what the gospel is. And he starts out by giving a very solemn and sobering presentation of our human condition. He writes in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, push down, put down, quash, quench the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It'd be like saying what can be known about Michelangelo's artistic genius is plain to us because he has shown it to us. What can be known about LeBron James' basketball skills is plain to us because he has shown them to us. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the things that are invisible about God, in other words, what he's saying there, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been made visible through the things that God has made. In other words, God says, I have made a sun. Do you see my power? I've made a solar system. Can you see my power? I made a universe. Can you see my power? His invisible qualities are seen through the things that he has made. As a result, he says, so they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile minds, foolish hearts, huge problem for mankind. 
And so Romans 1 presents us with our problem. We are without excuse in not honoring God, in not giving thanks to God. You get over to Romans chapter 3, and in order to build his case even further, Paul cites Old Testament scriptures. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you might try to be righteous. You might try to keep the law. You might try to do good. And you might be better at it than anybody else in the office. You might be better at it than any of the other students in your high school. You might be better at doing this than your neighbor. Maybe not. The only problem is, Their righteousness isn't what you get to use for measuring yours. I mean, it'd be like the group of guys from the church that get together and play basketball, measuring how good they are by comparing themselves to each other and deciding he's pretty good, he's average, he's not so good. But throw Steph Curry into the mix, that changes the whole standard of measurement. You see, you have to measure yourself according to God's righteousness, not your neighbors, not the other people at work. And the righteousness of Christ is your comparison. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, he never did anything wrong, no evil, no wickedness, no corruption. And so compared to God's righteousness, you come up drastically, infinitely short. If you've ever told a lie, even a little one, if you've ever had a lustful thought, if you've ever cheated on anything, if you've ever spoken one unkind word, if you've ever gossiped or slandered, if you've ever been envious of your neighbor, covetous, if you've ever exalted yourself in pride, you are declared to be unrighteous, and if unrighteous, then guilty, and if guilty, then condemned. That's our human condition. That's what Romans 3 is telling us. None is righteous, no, not one. But then, just as quickly as he told us about our condemnation and judgment, Paul then presents the solution, chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the law and the prophets in your Old Testament, they bear witness to the righteousness of God, but they're not the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? For all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And are justified not by works, not by keeping the law, not by being a great Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian or anything else not by the money you put in the offering plate, are justified by his grace, unmerited favor as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, fancy word, sacrifice to appease God's holy righteous wrath and judgment, a propitiation 
by his blood to be received by faith. So, friends, Romans 1, 2, and 3, we get to Romans 3. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's offered us his own righteousness as a gift through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. And so you are forgiven, you are declared justified, you are declared to be righteous as a result of the gift of God's mercy, kindness, and favor through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. But even the faith itself is a gift. Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you had known the gift of God, you would have asked the one who is talking to you right now, please give me the gift of living water. It's a gift Now you get on over to chapter five of Romans where Paul makes that incredible declaration, chapter five, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified just as if I'd never sinned, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is amazing news. You get over to chapter eight, He essentially says it again. There is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer standing in fear of God's wrath. You see, apart from Christ, apart from you this morning being in Christ, you have 10,000 reasons to be afraid every single day of meeting up with a holy God in all of your unrighteousness. But for those who are in Christ by faith, that fear is taken away. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's gone. God is no longer against me. God is now for me. He's for me. At the end of chapter 8, the apostle exults in the nature of God's love shown through Christ. Chapter 8, verse 34, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword? I mean, what else do you want to put on that list? Add to it hardship, poverty, a dysfunctional family of origin, terminal illness, Alzheimer's, cancers, a spouse who's cheated on you, a parent who has abandoned you? What has been the very worst for you? Put it on the list. Shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul says emphatically, no, a thousand times no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am confident, sure, rock solid sure, that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, demonic powers, satanic powers that we wrestle against in this world, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. It took him seven and a half chapters to get there, but that's where he ends up in Romans 8, exulting in God's love. You get to chapters 9 through 11, and Paul expounds more in those chapters on God's sovereign mercy, shown not only to the chosen people, the Jews, but also to the Gentiles or the Greeks. That's us, for the most part, I'm sure. In chapter 10, Paul writes, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Everyone you know who doesn't know Christ, if they will call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Friends, that's the wonder of the gospel. It's available to all who will call upon him. Then you arrive at chapter 12, where we are this morning. By the time you get here, Paul has spent 11 chapters telling us everything that God has done for us through Christ. So now, the question for those who have been born again, for those who have been justified in God's sight, adopted into God's family, who want to now follow Jesus, the question is this. How should I now live so as to honor and worship and express my thanks to God with all of my life? And here at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul begins to answer that question. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Remember, the, whenever you see the word therefore, ask what's the therefore, therefore. It's pointing back to the last 11 chapters. Paul's looking back to the last 11 chapters saying, now it's time for me to make my appeal Based upon what I've told you, I appeal to you. I make my appeal on the grounds of chapters 1 through 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because that's your new identity. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are now members of God's household through faith. You are adopted children in God's, you adopted children in God's family with God as your father and Christ as your brother. This is who you are now. Paul's saying, this is who you are based upon what I've told you in the last 11 chapters. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, with all of God's mercies as my argument in making my case, to present your bodies, your whole being, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, your mind, your all the members of your body, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. Dead sacrifices are done. No more dead sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and turtle doves. Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, was the very last blood sacrifice ever to be offered to God. Done. It's finished. No more. Therefore, we present our bodies to God, our lives to God as living sacrifices, 
holy and acceptable to God because you've been made holy and acceptable to God through Christ, which is your spiritual worship or your, your reasonable service. Paul is saying, this is how you worship God. It's not in coming to church on Sunday morning. Yeah, we worship God when we gather together with the saints. Very important, wonderful experience. But Paul says that's not the essence of worship. The essence of worship is presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him each and every day. A sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and obedience and service. Well, then Paul lays out the challenge in verse 2 that every one of us in this room who is in Christ is going to encounter as a follower of Jesus. And that is being conformed to the world by a pagan godless culture versus being transformed into a whole different person. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here's the twofold challenge. First of all, even though you are now a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, and that would account for many of you in this room, I know a lot of your stories, I don't know all your stories. If that doesn't account for you, then the first chap 11 chapters of Romans are critical for you to understand. You need to understand your human condition. You need to understand the gift of God made available to you. You need to understand the righteousness of God that's given to you in Christ. That without that, you stand before God naked and ashamed in your unrighteousness. You need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ if you're going to stand before God one day. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ... You call upon his name. You call upon his name. I call upon your name to save me. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved not by my works, not by my religion, not by my background, not by being born in America, but by my faith in your son, the Lord Jesus. For the rest of us who are believers and followers of Jesus, Yes, you are a new creation in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. But still, the world still has the power to conform you to itself. That's point number one. You need to understand, the world still has the power to conform you, and it will try relentlessly to do that. to mold you and shape you. Our grandkids will come over, and my wife is so, so good with the grandkids at always coming up with a craft. She always, has, she always thinks way ahead and has all the craft stuff out on the table. And Sometimes it's clay. Sometimes they, she gets out the clay, and they make clay creatures, and then she puts them in the oven and bakes them, and they take them home with them at the end of the day. But it's like clay. You, you, you shape it. You mold it. You push it. You press it. You, you make it into a shape that you, that you want it to look like. That's, that's what conform means, to shape or mold you to look like something else. Conform, to become similar in form, nature, or character. To act in accord with the prevailing standards, attitudes, and practices of society or a group. And so the world system 
under the influence of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, under the influence of Satan, the world system has the power to conform you to itself. Now, in some areas of life, we appreciate conformity, don't we? In some areas of life, it's really a good thing. If I go to a Chick-fil-A in Springfield, Illinois, or Springfield, Missouri, or Chesterfield, or Chattanooga, I, can, I want the classic Chick-fil-A sandwich and the waffle fries to taste the same as they tasted here and here and here, because that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful experience. You like conformity in certain areas. You want all of the Chick-fil-A workers to be the friendliest of all the fast food restaurants in town. When you say thank you, you want them to say back to you, my pleasure. See? You got it. <clears throat> but friends, conformity is not a good thing when it comes to Christians living in the world. Paul says, don't conform. Don't be the same as people who don't know Jesus. Don't adopt the world's values. Don't measure your life by the world's standards. Don't take on the world's character. Don't laugh at the same things that the world is laughing at. Don't believe the world's lies. Don't travel the world's highways. Don't accept the world's definition of success. Don't accept the world's definition of what it means to be rich. It's a wrong definition. The world has, is filled with lots of wrong definitions. Don't adopt them. Now, the why should be obvious. But let me just simply say, for me, the why is because when God graciously, sovereignly called me to himself and made me alive in Christ, he at the very same time was calling me out of the world. Because I cannot be fully belong to him if I still belong to the world. I've got to move. I've got to move. I've got to change residence. I've got to change location. I've got to change perspective. Peter wrote in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9, you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, what? Out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. That's what motivates us to be different. Now, the challenge in all of this is that we're still called to live in this world, right? It's not like tomorrow you can leave the world. You recall how Jesus prayed for his disciples? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so God sends us into the world, but says, do not conform to the world. First Corinthians 5, in his letter to the church of Corinth, the Apostle Paul gave these instructions. 
not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers of this world or idolaters of this world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. No, he's saying, I don't want you to associate with people who claim that they're Christians, but they live like pagans. You need to separate yourself from those folks. But as far as the sexually immoral and the greedy and the swindlers and idolaters who are in the world, no, those are the people who need you. Those are some of the people in your office. Those are some of the people that you go to school with. So see, see friends, that's the challenge. To live in the world but not be conformed to the world. Because, and listen, listen to this very clearly, we will be perfectly useless as Christ-exalting Christians if all we do is conform to the world around us. You will be useless to the people around you if you've conformed to the world. If you're just like all the other students on campus, if you're just like all the other guys at work who laugh at the exact same jokes as they're laughing at, if you're just like people of the world, you'll be useless as a Christ-exalting Christian. No, God wants for his people to be different, to stand out in a good way. Helps people of the world to see the path. Remember Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. The world needs you. He doesn't take us out of the world. He wants us to identify with Christ and then we can be of help to those who are lost in the darkness and don't know the way. Have you ever gone to a conference with thousands of people? You know, like... uh, Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, conferences that I've gone to. Promise Keepers, probably some of you going back a few years. I don't know what the ladies' conferences are. There would kind of be correlations. but And maybe in, your, in your, uh, your vocations, you go to huge conferences with thousands of people. And you've all got this black lanyard on that identifies you. You, know, you paid the dues and you got in and you belong. And then sprinkled through the crowd of thousands of black lanyards, there are maybe a few hundred green lanyard people. And you're told if you ever get lost or you don't know where to go or what to do, just find someone with a green lanyard and they will help you. That's us. We're the green lanyard people. (laughs) We're the people in the midst of all the masses of humanity who have been by God's grace, not because you deserved a green lanyard, it was just given to you as a gift by God's grace. It says, now go out to all the black lanyard people and help them see the way. And you do that by not conforming to the world. Standing out from the crowds in good ways. Really good ways. By loving your neighbors. Being kind to those who abuse you. Forgiving people where forgiveness isn't deserved. Extending grace to others. Actually being like Jesus was when he walked the earth. Now, the question that I found myself asking here on this do not conform part what is it that causes us to conform to the world? I think there are several factors. I'll give you just a few that I thought of. 
I mean, here we are, Christians. We love Jesus, and yet we're, we're going to be tempted to conform to the world. What are those things that cause us to conform? I think, first of all, pressure. Peer pressure, societal pressure. What will others think of me? What will people say about me? What might happen if I don't go along with the crowd? What, what will happen if I don't fit in? Will I be ostracized? Will others think I'm too fanatical about my faith? Will others judge me? As one of those, I don't know, all the terms that are used today that describe Christians. Will they stick other labels on me besides Christian? See, there's a steady pressure that the world and the people of the world put upon you to conform. And societal pressure and peer pressure makes us afraid of not conforming, of not going along with the crowd. I mean, Aaron gave in to the pressures of the people in Exodus to make for themselves a golden calf. He gave in to the pressures. Aaron, Moses' right-hand man spokesman before the Pharaoh, gave in to the pressures of the people. Why? Because he was afraid. Saul said to Samuel, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. And he gave a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to give. Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews. Herod was afraid of what his guests would say if he didn't serve up John the Baptist's head on a platter. Pontius Pilate feared offending the Jews, and so he gave Jesus up to be crucified. And when all those crowds were calling for Jesus to be crucified, the pressure, friends, would have been intense to go along with everyone else's chant, crucify him. Even if you thought otherwise, the pressure would have been incredible. I also see promises causing us to conform. The world system makes all kinds of promises. Promises that if you go along with the world, you'll be happier and healthier and sexier and richer and everything else under the sun. If you drive the same car as Matthew McConaughey, if you wear the same perfume as Julia Roberts, if you wear the same underwear as Michael Jordan, life will just be better for you. So you do whatever the world says you need to do to be happier and healthier and sexier and everything else. And then there's the passions. The world's promises play on your passions. Those are your desires, the desires of the flesh that haven't been put to death yet, and we've all got them, don't we? Don't you still have some passions of the flesh, desires of the flesh that still haven't been put to death? 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, there's your new identity, do not be conformed, there's that word again, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the way you used to live. You used to live like that. But now God has made you his child. You are children. And he has empowered you to live differently. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. First John 2, in terms of passions and desires, do not love the world. Boy, this is a tough one. I just, I just find myself analyzing this and analyzing it and trying to think, Lord, what are those things that I still love in the world that still are cleaving to me? Do not love the world or the things in the world. He's talking about the world system, the world's values, the things that the world says are the answers to life. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he elaborates, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life or pride of possessions, those things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Desires are not eternal. These kinds of desires aren't going to last. They're going to be gone. So are you sure that you want to let them drive your life, is what Peter is saying, or John is saying. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. A little book that I've used in discipling younger men, Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Ryle, he writes this. Remember what I say, if you would cleave to earthly pleasures, these are the things which murder souls. There is no surer way to get a seared conscience and a hard, impenitent heart than to give way to the desires of the flesh and the mind. It seems nothing at first, no big deal. This, is not, this isn't that important. Don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. It seems nothing at first. But it tells in the long run. It takes its toll in the long run. Maybe it seems like no big deal now because you are 30 or 35, but it will take its toll when you're 50 and 60 because you are that clay that is being shaped and molded and pressed and pushed. He wrote those words in 1881. They still apply today. And then the, the last P on those things that I see conforming, persecutions. Persecutions. You don't go along with the world and it persecutes you. It calls you names. It, it makes you lose your job. Uh, you're ostracized from your friends. You're cut off from the family. The, the worst of the worst happens to you, whatever that happens to be for Western Christians in an affluent country. Persecutions. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, if you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You're one of us. We love you. But because you're not of the world... I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, doesn't know what to do with you, because you are light in the midst of darkness. Those are the reasons we're going to be tempted to conform. Say, well, then Pastor Gary, what's the antidote? What's the solution? Well, that's the second part of the challenge, and that is point number two. While the world has the power to transform, to conform you, the word of God has the power to transform you. While the world still has the power to conform you, the word of God still has the power to transform you. Verse two, be transformed in the renewing, the renewal of your mind. And so transform means to change, to change the form, to be made different in form, nature, or character. The word is metamorphothe. It's actually the same word used to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
That's the word, transformation, transfiguration. When he was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and the clothes became white as light. And now Paul uses that exact same word and says, that's what God wants to do with you. He wants you to shine. He wants your face to look different. He wants your life to look different. He wants to transfigure you in a wonderful way. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, if your mind needs to be renewed, what's wrong with your mind? Do you know? Do you know what's wrong with your mind? First of all, it's contentious at enmity with God. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. And so the mind is contentious. It, it wants to fight against God. It wants to resist God. Secondly, it's corrupted. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. First Timothy 6, people who are depraved in mind. Titus 1, their minds and their consciences are defiled. And so your mind has corruption at work in it. Thirdly, it's calloused. 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were hardened. Hardened. When you form a callus, that part of, that part of your skin isn't as sensitive as it once was. It gets tougher, impenetrable, less sensitive to pain, less sensitive to being touched. It's callous. Your heart gets like that. Your heart can get hardened to the things of God. And then the last word is contorted. It's bent in the wrong direction. I get that from an interesting phrase in Ephesians 4.22. Paul says, we are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In the spirit of your minds. So your, your, your mind isn't just your, this three-pound brain that has phenomenal storage capacity no, it has a bent to it. It's bending in the wrong direction. It has been contorted. It is bent away from God, not toward God. It is away from honoring God, away from thanking God. You see, the spirit of your mind wants to know lots of things, doesn't it? Curious minds want to know. But it isn't bent toward knowing much of God. Your mind is intrigued with lots of things mysterious in this life, but it's not all that intrigued with God. You know, the spirit of your mind marvels over people, what they can do, their skills, their intelligence, their fame, but the spirit of your mind does not marvel that much over God's skills, God's intelligence, or Christ's fame. I would just ask, ask you a simple question. Think over the past seven days since we last met. How much effort did you expend getting to know God and Christ? And how much effort does it require you to make your mind want to spend time getting to know God and Christ? It's because your mind is bent. The spirit of your mind bends away from God. That's why it needs to be renewed by a work of God's spirit through the scriptures.
Say, okay, Pastor Gary, here at the very end, tell us how, the, how does this happen? How can I renew my mind? I'll share with you three verses. Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It takes intentionality. It takes a decision on your part. Two action verbs, seek and set. Seek things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. If all we do is seek the things of this world, we're wasting our lives. And if all you do is set your mind on things that are here on earth, you will be conformed to this world. You've got to take control of your mind. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so this, the renewal of the self in knowledge, that's where your mind comes in. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's the word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. And say, Gary, where do we behold the glory of the Lord? Where do we today behold the beauty of the Lord? Right here. Right here. The Holy Spirit seeks to get you to, seeks to expose your mind to the beauty of the gospel, to the beauty of Christ in the Psalms. So that he wants you to see Christ in Isaiah. He wants you to see Christ in Deuteronomy. He wants you to see Christ in all of Scripture. He wants you to see Christ as the better judge, the better king, the better sacrificial lamb. And so what do you do? You read your Bible looking for Jesus. You read your Bible looking for Christ praying for the Spirit of God to take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and renew your mind, transforming you into the image of your Creator. question is always, what will you do with this? What will you do with this? You now understand, hopefully a little more clearly when you first came in, of the world's power to conform you to itself. It is relentless. But you also know because the Spirit of God now dwells within you and the Word of God is at your fingertips as a, the gift of God, the Spirit of God, working with the Word of God, has the power to transform you by the renewal of your mind. I pray that this week these things might happen for each of us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your Word once again this day. And now I would pray that the Spirit of God would take the words that we have looked at in your holy word 
and impress that upon our minds and our hearts. Lord, we cannot renew ourselves. You've shown us the things, the steps we can take, the things we are called to do because you've called us to yourself. But we rely not on ourselves, but on your spirit to do this renewing work in us. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that even this week, before we meet again, that the word of God would be shown to us in its beauty, in its wonder, in its glory, as it shines the light on Christ and we see him more clearly. Remake us into the image of our Savior, we pray. In Jesus' name.